hostility towards their Christian faith, Peter wants to encourage these brothers and sisters to live boldly for Christ. He wants to do this by reminding them and speaking about these three themes throughout the epistle, the three S's. And if you ever uh, forget them, ask somebody from the community group because they should know these three S's that we see in 1 Peter. Number one is salvation. Peter wants the Christians in Asia, Man- Asia Minor who are being persecuted to remember and rejoice in our great salvation. There's many times where Peter will dangle the, the, the reward before the persecuted Christian as if remain steadfast. This is the inheritance that we have reserved for us in heaven, as it says in chapter 1. The second S is the theme of suffering. Peter wants them to suffer well for the name of Christ. And Christ himself being our great example, as it says in chapter 2. The Christian is not to shy away from suffering and run away from it, but to go through it for the glory of God. And over and over, there's this theme of suffering throughout 1 Peter. So we have salvation, suffering. And lastly, we see the theme of submission. Submission to the will of God. And submission to the will of God implies a lot of things. Holiness. It implies submitting to authorities, as it says in chapter 2, chapter 3. We are to submit to our uh, 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 governing authorities, wives submitting to their husbands, uh, we as a church submitting to our elders, submitting to one another, as we'll read in a few moments. But submission to the will of God guarantees success in living a godly life. These three themes that we see over and over in 1 Peter, salvation, suffering, submission, And so why would I single out verse 6, chapter 5, verse 6? Well, considering it's the last Sunday of this year, the last day of this year, which is kind of neat, I think it's a good habit to reflect upon the year that we've just lived. I don't know if you do that in New Year's Eve or New Year's time. It's always good to reflect. I think that's a good habit. It's a good tradition. And it's also good to consider what attitude will you bring to the next year. God is sovereign. And though we don't have a prescription in Scripture to do this, God providentially gives us 365 days. There's blocks of time God gives us. We think like that in weeks or days sometimes. This week I'm going to do this. This year I'm going to do this. Right? And we see, uh, obviously, we talk about resolutions and why the gyms are so full of January 1st, right? And that's where they make all their money. And then towards August, you know, it's dwindling down. And then towards September, it's like a desert in there, right? <laughs> of everybody who made their resolutions. I believe our text can help us to do these things, to consider the year we have lived this year, we have gone through this year, and to set our minds on Christ, and our minds on the right track as we consider a new year. Well, let's read our text. It's just one verse, but I'll read two verses, 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. It says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Let's pray. 
God, as we come to you, Lord, grant grace, grant ears to hear, hearts to conceive, and eyes to see the wonder, the wonderful things you have prepared for us in your word. Would you do that by the power of your Holy Spirit? In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So I've entitled this sermon, The Mighty Hand of God. And I see that as the main, the the thing that grasps my attention in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And you really see this imagery of a mighty hand, of an enormous hand. Your mind automatically goes to that. And I think I want to begin explaining what is the mighty hand of God. We consider that. What is meant by the mighty hand of God? Well, let's state the obvious. Does God really have a hand? Children, does God have hands? Think about that. What does the catechism say? What is God? Answer, God is spirit and has no body like men. God is spirit. That's who our God is. Oh, then why does it say that God has a mighty hand? Well, clearly this is anthropomorphic language, right? You understand that word, right? It's when we apply creaturely talk to, um, uh, in this case, to God. We talk of the finger of God or the fingers of God, the face of God. Even in Psalms, it talks, he will cover you with his pinions, with his wings. Now, if all that is literal, we have a really weird picture of what God is. But it's all figurative. It's to explain something, an idea of how God interacts with his creation. The shadow of his wings is his protection over his people. The face of God is his, his blessing. He, he, he shall shine his face upon you, his countenance on you. That's a sign of blessing. The finger of God is the direct uh, um, precision of God in creation. So too with the mighty hand of God. You think of these two words, mighty and hand. When you think mighty, what do you think? Power, right? And when you think of a hand, a hand does things. It's, it's, you think of action. It's powerful doing, this mighty hand. In other words, it's his sovereignty over this world. This is control, his limitless control and limitless power to accomplish his eternal purpose. In other words, children, God can do whatever he wants. God can do all things. Again, the catechism, can God do all things? Caleb, can God do all things? Yes, God can do all his holy will, the catechism says. A a biblical illustration of this is in Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel. And really, part of, our, of the sermon would be, really be a Bible study. So I hope you brought your Bible. And if you enjoy um, turning the, um, your scriptures to the references, I encourage you to do so today. Daniel chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 28. We see this, one of, probably one of my favorite sections of scripture. We see King Nebuchadnezzar. He comes... Well, let's just read it. Uh, Verse 28, chapter 4, verse 28 in the book of Daniel. It says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is 
not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Didn't hear that tone. 31. And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall make you, they shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And at that very hour was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like birds' claws. You see the sovereignty of God there. You will be humbled, King Nebuchadnezzar. And finally, in verse 34, after whatever seven times means, most people think it's seven years. Verse 34, King Nebuchadnezzar says this. And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. You see the difference. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his what? His hand. Or say to him, what have you done? That's sovereignty. That's the mighty hand of God upon a man being humbled. Beautiful stuff. Isaiah 43, 13 says, Even from eternity I am he, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? It's powerful language. God's mighty hand is his control over everything and everyone, including you. Does God have a right to control you? Absolutely he does. He's God. Your very breath comes from him. And there are many times that the mighty hand of God, which we see throughout the Bible, is used in different ways. Sometimes the mighty hand is a hand of deliverance. Sometimes it's a hand of chastisement and discipline towards those whom he loves. Sometimes his hand is a hand of pruning and growing. We've all felt that at times, right? Sometimes it's a hand of judgment. Let's take these four examples. Deliverance. Turn to Exodus 3. Exodus 3, 19. Really, throughout the whole, all of Exodus, we see this language of the mighty hand going into Numbers and Deuteronomy. And it's speaking about the deliverance of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. Exodus 3.19 says this, But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do 
in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. You see the mighty hand coming to deliver Israel with the mighty hand of God. At times, is, as I said, is a time of chastisement and discipline. You can turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, we'll read the first four verses. It says, Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, silent over what? Over his sin. My groans grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your what? hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into drought of summer. We've, we've all experienced that. When we're in unrepentant sin, there's like a heaviness. The, the, the hand of God is heavy upon us. That's the mighty hand of God in the life of the believer. We don't have to turn there, but we, we think of Job, the pruning of Job and him growing to, at one point he's questioning God, and then at the end, what does he say? My eyes have now seen you. I repent in dust and ashes. There was a pruning there, the hand of God pruning Job. And finally, turn to 1 Samuel 5 to see, I love this story of, of the Philistines with the ark. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 5, uh, what Hector, our, our brother Hector read in our scripture reading. Starting at verse 6, I just want to go over it again with you. 1 Samuel chapter 5 verse 6 says, But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. And he ravaged them and struck them with tumors. It's judgment. Both Ashdod and its territory and the men of Ashdod saw how it was. They said, the ark of God, of, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is harsh toward us. And Dagon, our God, if you remember the story, they put him in the temple of Dagon. They put the, the ark of, of the Lord in the temple of Dagon. And what happened? Dagon was prostrating himself towards the ark. I said, well, that's weird. Maybe, maybe it was a window or something, right? So they put him up again, and what happens the next day? Again, Dagon is destroyed before the ark. And they're like, what does this mean? And the hand of God was heavy upon them. But wait, well, what if we move him to another city? The hand was heavy upon them. And it came to verse 10. Therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. So it was that the ark of God came to Ekron. And the Ekronites cried out saying, They have brought the ark of the, of the God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. The hand of God was heavy and they knew that. So we see here the hand of God is judgment. And finally, in, in verse six, in chapter six, it says there. So they, they get all the, the the counselors, right, the the teachers together of the Philistines. What shall we do? In verse three, so they said, "If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, 
and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Powerful stuff. We see the mighty hand of God, how it can be turned towards someone over them in judgment, or how can it, it, it can be under someone to lift them up and to deliver them. It's the hand of God. And dear Christian, you must remember, remember that the hand of God is at work in your life. Whether it's delivering or whether it's disciplining or it's pruning you, you are to remember that it's for you. That limitless potential, that limitless power is for you. God's hand was over 2023 and it will be over 2024. Amen? We must reject our, our, our atheistic culture, right? That if something happens, oh, that, that, that doesn't mean anything. That's just chance. That's just random. That's just particles smashing against each other. Or deism. You know what deism is? Uh, basically the notion of that, <clears throat> that God is like a clockmaker, and he makes the clock, and he gets it running, and then he just walks away. He gets creation, he creates universe, and then he just walks away, and he leaves fate to happen in his world. We must reject that. God's mighty hand is over every moving molecule in this world. That's good, that's bad, that's the beauty of this world, and that's the ugly of this world. God has a purpose for it all and an involvement in everything. Turning back to 1 Peter. What a comfort that is. Amen? I heard a pastor once say who, unfortunately, he lost his, his daughter, his, um, stillborn at eight months. And somebody came up to him and said, God did not want this to happen. He said, that doesn't make me feel any better. God didn't want this to happen? What do you mean? He, he couldn't stop it? He has no power to, to stop evil? No, he has a purpose because this happened. He has a sovereign decree, and it's good. And I might not understand it now, but his hand is over me, and it will guide me. First Peter, excuse me, I got a little sidetrack there. <clears throat> First Peter, oh, now we understand what the mighty hand of God is. Amen? So what is our response? What does it say? Verse 6, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And we see this even in, in verse, uh, up in verse 5. If you're there, it says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves. See that topic of submission, as I mentioned in the beginning. Submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. This word, Clothed means to tie a knot. Tie it, as it says in Proverbs, tie wisdom around your neck. Tie a knot of humility. And it's really used as an apron that a slave would wear. A slave would wear an apron and tie a knot. And we as slaves of Christ must tie the apron of humility around us. We must be clothed with 
humility. What does it say? Why? For God resists the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. That's the warning, right? God resists the proud, but it gives grace to the humble. This is uh, Septuagint, or the, uh, the Greek Old Testament version of Proverbs 3.34. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. What a sobering text. Any of you proud? <laughs> Realize that if you're not humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God, you are proud. God's hand is against you. Proud literally means to, uh, uh, it's a showing oneself uh, uh, above others. Literally, that's what it means. To, to, to bring yourself up. Right? And, and humility is the opposite. It, is, it literally means to make low of oneself. What are some ways that we can resist? I mean, we can be proud. What are, what are some ways? Some obvious ways is vainglory. Right? You know you're wrong, but you're still fighting as if you're right. <laughs> right? Or, or you could be right about something, but be terribly wrong on how you treat other people. <laughs> right? What about uh, vainglory, as I mentioned? Attributing your, your life success, your, your money, your stuff to yourself. Even perhaps your intelligence. Even you, your children. You're growing up in a Christian household. Being homeschooled, most of you, or having a Christian education. And th- there could be a boasting there. Like, oh, I'm not like those pagans in public school. Right? And you could boast in your intelligence. Look how smart I am. Look how good my family is. That could be pride. Even us Reformed folk, Calvinist folk, can be a, which is so, it's so contradictory, right? What does Calvinism say? God has done everything for you. Your salvation comes from him. It has nothing to do with you. And then we can be on, you know, uh, uh, um, what do you call it? Doctrine police on, on, uh, on Facebook. It's ridiculous. There's a, a book called Humble Calvinism by J.A. Meters. I read it. It's, it's really good. And, and, it, it, and it's basically like humble Calvinism. No, that's not an oxymoron, Right? If we truly believe God is sovereign over our life, if we truly believe that everything we have is a gift from Him, then we would be the most humble people on earth. That's an obvious way of being proud. What are so, some not-so-obvious ways? Well, my mind automatically goes to worry and anxiety. I'm not, I'm not a doctor. I'm not here to, to, to criticize your anxiety uh, diagnosis, your clinical anxiety diagnosis. But I think we will be foolish to think that if we're constantly worrying and, and being anxious, we are not trusting God. Look what verse 7 says. Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. This casting, this word means hurling. <laughs> it's like throw it on, throw your cares on God. Pastor Steve read Philippians uh, where it talks about be anxious for nothing. That's a commandment. Do not worry. 
But through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And if you're a person that's always worrying, you're so anxious, Jesus has words for you. He says, do not worry. Do not be anxious. By, by you worrying, can you add a day to your life? That's what he says. That's a way that a hidden pride there. Like, I must worry because it depends on me, and, and I need to do this, and, and it's, I need to control this. Humble yourself. God resists the proud, but, what does it say? Gives grace to the humble. With humility comes grace. Limitless grace. How much grace does God have? It's endless With humility comes grace, grace to endure whatever comes our way. Grace to be joyful in the midst of trial. Grace to trust in the judge of this world who will do what is right. Grace to believe in the promises of God and for that wayward child. God, he's in your hands. Grace to endure intense suffering, persecution, physical uh, uh, ailment. There's grace there. If you humble yourself. And think back in this year. Think back in 2023 and, and try to remember your proud moments. And not proud moments in a good way. <laughs> your pride moments. And remember the moments where you humbled yourself. I'll have more on the application on that later. But it's good to take note of that. So verse 6, it says, therefore, humble yourself. To humble yourself is to realize you are clay, and he's the potter. It's, it's to say what Christ said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will be done, but your will be done. It's to trust in the Lord, to cast all your cares upon him. It's to be patient for whatever it is that you're waiting for. Perhaps it's a spouse or that job promotion, whatever it is, God cares about that. He says he cares for you in verse 7. Humble yourself. I remember uh, I worked at Walgreens for, as, a, as a clerk for a little bit, and one day this lady comes in, she's, she's weeping. She's buying something, and she's, she's weeping, and I'm like, what's wrong? You know? and, and she says, well, I just found out my, my friend has cancer. And I just, I just, well, some of these things happen. It just makes me wonder if there is a God. What? <laughs> Can't say that. That's not, you're not allowed to do that. God is God. He's in control. That's pride. Where have you heard anybody says, oh, I'm mad at God right now. It's this season in my life, I'm just, just mad. I'm just angry at him. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. Why did this happen? Brothers, the only thing we deserve is hell. The only thing you deserve is hell. For your sin. And the fact that you don't go there. And he gives you eternal life. And everything else, all that is Christ is yours. That's a grace. There's nothing that we can say to God. Why did you do this? Why, why, why? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. 
Boy yourself. Well, it says, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You're, you guys are going to memorize this scripture by the end of the sermon. I'll tell you that. Let it be your motto for 2024. What is God's response? That, 6b, verse 6, second part, that he may exalt you in due time. That he may exalt you in due time. Consider the, ton- the context of this epistle. Christians persecuted. Christians, being, their families being torn apart. The husband got caught at work preaching Christ in jail to, to the lions. Child being ripped from mother. For faith in Christ. House is being burned down. Life is being lost. Consider the, the cold drink of water this is. If you humble yourself, if you remain under the mighty hand of God, whatever that is for you, he will exalt you in due time. This word exalt is to lift up. He will lift you up, and perhaps that means he will lift you up out of this suffering, and we know that's true. At the very end, the last day, when we see his face, we will be glorified. We will be like him. No more pain, no more tears, no more night, no more sin. That could happen here on earth. He might deliver you from your migraines. He might deliver you from that cancer. He might deliver you from... Your pers- that persecution. But the, the commandment is the same. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. It could also mean he will exalt you. He will praise you. Not in a heret- heretical way, blasphemous way, but God praising the Christian good and faithful servant. He will uplift you. I think in context it can mean both. It can mean both. God is not against exaltation. Clearly, he will exalt you. He's against self-exaltation, which is pride. God is not against man getting glory. He's against the glory of man. We hear the, the um, what do you call it, the, the, the saying, pride goes before the fall, right? Or destruction, as John tells us. But here we can easily say humility goes before exaltation. Humble yourself that he may exalt you in due time. In due time, your version might say proper time, ESV or NAS. This is the word kairos. It's not just any time. It's, it's the fixed time. The time that is set already for when you will be exalted. In other words, it's God's time. Excuse me. God's time. At God's time, at God's pace, in God's sovereignty, in God's plan and providence, He will exalt you. The command is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Lastly, turn to Daniel 4. Daniel 4 again to see Nebuchadnezzar's last words. And here he really sums it up for us. 
Remember, I'll read verse 35 again. Daniel 4, starting in verse 35. It says, All the inhabitants of earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. What a difference. All of whose works are truth and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, what does it say? He is able to put down. We see God exalting this man after he humbled himself. But I love those words at the end. All those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Well, how shall we live then, brethren, to quote Francis Schaeffer, right? How shall we then live? Well, reflect upon this year. Reflect, as I said, in your pride moments. And those moments were God allowed you to be humble. And if you need to repent, repent. So many times we can go through seasons of our life of pride and not bad an eye. Repent. Lord, I'm sorry for this season, this month, that week, that time I was a proud Christian. Allow me for this year to reject pride. What else should we say? Think of those moments where you were humble. God allowed you to be humble and you embraced humility. Well, praise God for that. And ask for more grace to continue in that heart. And looking forward to 2024, think. Think of those four ways the mighty hand is given in Scripture. Deliverance, the chastening, the purging. Have you been delivered? Have you been delivered from the bondage of sin? Humble yourself. Humble yourself. Say, God, that was all you. I come under that. That that was all you. You're working. Are you being chastened? Will you be chastened in 2024? Humble yourself. Remember, Lord, I I, I agree with you, as Pastor Steve said in his prayer. When we sin, we, we confess and we come under. You say, I humble myself. You are right. I was wrong. Humble yourself. Do not resist the chastening of the Lord, Job says. Are you being purged? Just going through a season of dryness that, that God might grow you. Humble yourself. Whatever that suffering may be, whatever that means may be for God to purge remaining sin, humble yourself. And think of Christ, your Lord, who himself was humbled. Himself was humbled on your behalf. What about This is God's hand for you or against you. If you're an unbeliever here today, right now as you sit in that chair, the hand of God is resisting you. It is against you. And the only thing that awaits you is not exaltation, but humiliation. 
and hell. Turn to Christ. See His mighty hands who became fleshly hands in Christ. His hands were nailed, pierced for our iniquity that you may live and be healed. Ask the Lord to crush your prideful heart and grant you grace. Well, be encouraged, dear Christian. God's hand was over you this year and will be over you next year. Let's pray.